TVA 21 Academy Radio. We humans want a sea tenderly caressing the shores, a sea whose bright deep blue soothes sorrows and anger, a sea safe to swim in, a sea where cadavers and waste disappear, a sea of pristine predators who leave us alone, a sea whose delicacies joyfully die in our arms, a sea free of stings, a sea whose waves carry us wherever we'd like to go, a sea that lets us breathe over and under water, a sea that warms us and absorbs our heat, a sea of creatures to talk to, a sea of singing and dancing and falling in love, not falling, a sea of silence, a sea that teaches immortality and peace, a sea that forgives and forgets, a sea that is all gentle touch. But what are the wants of the sea? What are the wants of the sea? Welcome to Ocean Wants, a series of 10 podcasts that playfully explores how non-humans could like our planet to be. Conceived and hosted by Ingo Nierman, Ocean Wants was commissioned to celebrate TBA 21 Academy's 10th anniversary. Episode 10, Ocean Nation, featuring Marcus Ryman. While the land is ruled by nations and supernations, the ocean is subject to the tragedy of the commons. What if the ocean turned into a nation of its own, the largest nation in the world. I'm Ingo Niemann, a speculative writer, most recently of the book Mare Amores, and today I'm talking to Markus Reimann, director of TBA 21 Academy and its ocean space in Venice. We speak at his office in Madrid. My name is Markus Reimann. I'm the co-founder and director of TBA 21 Academy. Uh, and together with the team, I'm responsible or we're responsible for Ocean Space in Venice and Ocean Archive. I've been doing this now for 10 years. We co-founded together, Francesca Tismonomissa and myself, in 2011, the Academy as a, as a new program within TBA 21, which is Tismonomissa Art Contemporary, which is a contemporary art foundation and collection that was at the time based in Vienna. And... Yeah, in 2011, the challenge was to create a new format, to um, embark on a new journey for the foundation as it was approaching the 10-year anniversary. And um, that was the beginning of a beautiful, windy, meandering, uh, floating, swimming and drifting journey. How did the ocean come into your life? The ocean came into my life through my grandmother. My grandmother lived in Scotland, on the west coast of Scotland, in a small village called West Kilbride. And from her um, sitting room window, you could look at the Isle of Arran. And um, as I grew up in central Germany, um, on the outskirts of Wiesbaden, surrounded by fields and forests, these trips and journeys to visit my grandmother on the coasts of the Scottish Sea is I like to believe my first living memory. It was so completely extraordinarily different from anything that I had seen before or heard before. There's this movement where seemingly the earth kind of comes up in a wave and crashes onto onto the beach. It's You know, the Scottish Sea is uh, very often it's lead gray and um, and looks, yeah, lead, asphalt, something like that. And entering the sea, how did that start? Entering the sea started um, on the Atlantic coast of France, a very wild and turbulent body of water, extremely fun to play in the surge and the waves and the and to experience the power of it, to experience the way that it can just take you away and, and tumble you 
and throw you to the ground. Um, I was a swimmer. I was a competitive swimmer for a long, long, long time. And I started very early then to um, compete, meaning I spent first uh, one day a week in the pool and then it turned out that I was quite talented then three days a week in the pool then it turns out that is this talent maybe uh, something to pursue then it was five days seven days ten times a week in the water and so the ocean or, or the water was always a, a medium an element that it was extremely comfortable in I have never been afraid there were moments that were very very dangerous that I've spent in the water surfing uh, diving, snorkeling, free diving, things like that. But I was never afraid. I felt at home. And and I think this gave me the possibility to experience and enjoy the ocean in a fearless, playful, completely joyous, ecstatic manner. And it has always remained like that. I mean, um, I go into, into a beach break um, and I immediately turn into a child. What is it, the buoyancy? It's the buoyancy, this feeling of being carried, um, the taste of the ocean, the smell when you come out of the water, it kind of lingers on your lips, all of that. And even when you go diving, which is completely alien, you need to have uh, an apparatus with you that enables you to dive. But there is a strange feeling of connectedness, of being surrounded by life and death, teeming life when you're lucky, deserts that make you really sad when you're in an unhealthy ecosystem, or even in the deep ocean, right? There's, um, there's very often very little life that you perceive. But then again, when you go diving at night, a blackwater dive, which is um, like going to outer space and encountering the most extraordinary most alien most weird creatures on the planet you all of a sudden see and you realize that you are in the midst of quadrillions of uh, little creatures that are all migrating to the surface and then going back down it's incredible to feel this kind of connection to life i was never afraid of being in the water but for a long time i didn't see anything in the sea so I, I swam even without glasses as a child. Sometimes I would maybe grab some seaweed. And um, I think my only contact with creatures in the sea were jellyfish. Yeah, because they stung me. <laughs> yeah. um, it took me ages to see creatures as well. It took me ages. I mean, you would see the jellyfish on the beach or the kind of the, the skull of a, of a um, cuttlefish or something. You would find these remnants of things on the beach, right? Crabs, you'd play in these t uh, tide po pools with crabs and these little fish. But I was also like you. I was like a complete purist. It was about the joy of being moved, right? It was really the joy of moving your own body through the water or being moved by water. And so these first encounters with other species were really tremendous. And then um, to understand that different um, places and different um, engagement of humans with the sea trigger different reactions from the species that you encounter is tremendous. Because when you come to a place where there is no fishing, because you're so remote or very little fishing, there's so much curiosity. You just become a very strange being that, you know, needs to be checked out and needs to swim up to you and in the kind of circle you and, and all of that. And when you stay uh, long enough still in one place, all of a sudden, I guess you turn into something like a rock or something like that. So you disappear into the environment. And there's this um, incredibly surprising curiosity because we're so used to um, animals being afraid of us. Whenever we approach a bird, the bird flies away. When you go um, diving, free diving in a place where there's lots of fishing, you can see, you dive down, poof, everything leaves. So we jump a bit ahead. You and Francesca, you start TBA 21 Academy. What was the initial idea? The initial idea was to create a living archive of a journey that we embarked on with an open question, what is the ocean? And um, we wanted to ask these questions or we wanted artists to ask these questions and we wanted artists to ask these questions 
to scientists, to legal experts, to policymakers, to engineers, and so on. There was the um, the desire to engage with artists in experiencing and connecting to the ocean through their eyes, through their senses, through their abilities to sense their environment, and to ask profound questions. And the idea was really to to create an, a living archive, to, so to make this documentation accessible. And more or less in the beginning, it was an idea of creating a digital tool that was like a boat itself, where you could navigate the sea of, of stories and content um, that we would create and, and collect. And then there was a point where we um, had crossed the Atlantic. So the initial journey on, uh, on the Dardanella, which was the starting point of the academy, and uh, for seven years, the only and for 10 years, the main content provider of, of the program is a 39-meter explorer vessel called the Dardanella. So over these 10 years, this developed into a regular practice. You did like annual expeditions. Yeah, um, it, uh, it was already in the beginning, it was an annual practice, but it was very loosely organized, right? It was um, on invitation only, friends uh, or participants that we had or collaborators that we had been working with for a while. Um, scientists from the network that we had known uh, from other occasions and so on. Um, but at some point, we realized that this needs a different form of engagement. And in the beginning, we kind of, we wanted to stay away from creating objects, right? It was really about something different. It was about the process and the stories and about the journey and about um, collaboration and, and engagement with the places and, and the people and with ourselves. Um, and first and foremost, the ocean. But at some point you realize that when you work with artists, you need to let them make things. That's the way ideas take shape, thoughts um, take form, they manifest, and then you can encounter them and then someone else can, can experience these ideas that might be based on uh, on science or it might be based on feminist theory, queer theory, all of the things that we're now engaging with, all of these discourses, but you can make them accessible to people that would not read these scientific papers, not read these essays in, in discursive journals and so on. And that was really the moment where we created The Current. And The Current was, at the time, also still this hybrid version where we said, okay, we're looking at long-term cycles, three-year cycles, we would invite guest curators to lead these cycles. And these guest curators um, were tasked with inviting five people, ideally from different disciplines, to come on one annual journey, which lasted two weeks with them, to engage with the places, the communities, um, and the ocean under certain curatorial aspects that we had discussed beforehand. But then Instead of uh, going and immediately going into production mode, which is something that um, the art world very often does, no? It's like you have an idea, you have an inspiration, you have an image, and then go produce, right? It needs to be an exhibition. That we wanted to take away. And so we said, okay, uh, we have these convenings within six months after these uh, exploratory journeys. And these convenings were really meant to be multi-formatted um, gatherings, you know, happenings of ideas, and performative conferences where a keynote lecture would sit next to a, a poetry reading, a workshop would sit next to a screening, a participatory performance would sit next to a kind of policymaker panel, right? And um, this, in turn... Um, give us the chance to really engage very closely with artists that were not in our network and scientists that were not in our network or thinkers that were not in our network, writers and so on. The um, only um, request was that within these three years, the process would surface every now and again. It would be made visible to the public, the public engages with it, and then it goes back into the studio and continues. And so... Slowly, slowly, the Academy started commissioning and producing. Then we had our first exhibition, which was already before the current, actually, but that was more um, a kind of performative um, happening on in the archetype of all treasure islands, Cocos Island, which is 250 miles off the coast of Costa Rica, 
and uh, supposedly the biggest pirate loot in the history of pirate loots is buried there, which meant that everybody and their mother would go there to try to find this pirate loot. Um, and uh, then in 87, the Costa Rican government decided this is over. And we knew that our, our route would pass by there. Um, we also knew that since 1997, it's a World Heritage Site, not because of the island and not because you know all of its histories, but because the congregation of hammerhead sharks, a critical endangered species um, that comes together there because this island reaches from 4,000 meters below sea level to 800 meters above. So this is why it was so interesting for pirates because it can disappear like that it's the only island in the eastern pacific that has its own weather system so you can be 150 meters away from the island and there's a fog around it you can never see the island but it's because it rains so much there it's full of hardwood so pirates could go they could fix their boats it's hard to find it's hard to navigate to they could drop their pirate loot and then they can come back and pick it up and they can fix their boat. But because it sits in the middle of the Humboldt current and it rises from so deep, there's an upwelling of nutrients, which means lots of marine life, which means in a healthy ecosystem, lots of sharks. So in 97, it gets uh, declared a World Heritage Site. Around it is a 12-mile no-take zone. And the Costa Rican government um, places, I think, six rangers in a ranger station with one boat on this island to protect this 12-mile no-take zone. So at some point, um, the Chinese middle class gets bigger and bigger, wealthier and wealthier, and um, one of the expression of wealth is shark fin soup. Well, now you have this incredibly bad protected no-take zone with the largest congregation of hammerhead sharks. So every night on this 12-mile demarcation line, are 20, 30, 40 illegal fishermen with long lines that go into the park and they just pull out thousands and thousands of sharks, right? They fin them, they throw the shark back. These are sharks that don't have muscles in their gills, so um, it's insane to think, but these sharks drown. And with all of this knowledge, right, we thought, okay, is there something that we can do? And then uh, the curator that we had worked with at the time, Nadim Zaman, he came up with this idea to bury a new treasure a contemporary art treasure. And so we reached out to 40 artists that we had worked with and others that uh, he had worked with before. And um, the likes of uh, Olaf Eliasson, Marina Abramovitz, um, uh, Lawrence Wiener, uh, Los Carpinteros, Carsten uh, Nikolai, uh, all of them, they give us unique pieces of work, tiny little miniatures or records or USB sticks and so on. And um, we put him into a Aranda Lash architecture and design team from New York, designed object that looked like something that fell out of the sky. And, um, and we buried it on the island with the permission of the, of the Costa Rican government because um, they thought about protecting the island from treasure hunters. They had never thought about that. Someone could ask, can we bring a new treasure? So we brought it there. We took the GPS coordinates because every good treasure needs a treasure map. And uh, Constant Dula, the Dutch um, post-internet artist, then turned it into an 8,600-figure code and 3D printed it onto a steel scroll, and that was the map. Only that this map had more options to crack, you know, more options to, to be the code than we have stars in our galaxy. And, uh, and so it's a very good treasure map. And that we then took uh, with another object that looked very much like the chest where we buried all of these um, um, artworks in. Uh, we took that to auction. We sold it off. And with the money that we raised, we initiated a research and conservation project for the pelagic species on Cocos Island. So that was the first time, but that was like maybe 12 people saw this exhibition. After that, we went into the current. And uh, then years later... Stefanie Hessler curated the first exhibition, which was 2017, called Tidalectics. She worked very closely with Utamita Bau, who was the first leader of the first current cycle. And, um, and out of that, she developed the idea for Tidalectics. And with that, we opened a completely new dimension to the work of the Academy, something that we, in the beginning, did not um, intend to do, creating objects and creating artworks and so on but then opened that door and um, that then at some point led to a completely different question uh, for an organization that was itinerant for the longest time, do we need a space? And after 
long back and forth um, and a fantastic opportunity that uh, presented itself to us in Venice. Um, we decided that we needed a space to make it possible for people to encounter the approach. And so that was the, the birth of Ocean Space, which we're now in the third year of in Venice. Big question, what do you think are the major achievements, major failures of those 10 years? Um, I think a major achievement is that a geographical feature of this planet that hadn't been considered in the cultural sphere, at least the contemporary art sphere for the longest time is all of a sudden, it's a topic. It's by design um, removed and, and invisibilized, right? Because it's a place of dumping trash, extraction, logistics, all of these human trafficking, slavery, overfishing. Most people think of the ocean, they think of the beach, right? It's funny. But so that this has become a topic, I think, is an achievement. All of a sudden, these engagements with um, the European Commission, right, that we are sitting on the advisory board to the Mission A Healthy Ocean, that we are helping uh, to write uh, and develop the project Starfish, which is um, how the Mission A Healthy Ocean is supposed to be delivered for the European Union and uh, for the European Commission, and the allocation of funds, which had 100 million for uh, over 10 years for um, communication turned into 300 million for culture and communication. You know, that's an achievement on a completely different level. What are the biggest failures? I think one of the failures that we're trying to respond to now and that we're trying to figure out how to counter is that it has taken us a long, long time to not only import and export ideas and inspiration from the West to the margins and back, right? I think that has been difficult. I think the the ethics around visiting when you come on, you know, a completely alien spaceship and arrive in a place that is deemed remote, it has a huge impact, right? It has a huge impact. And despite having made lots of friendships and despite having followed up on this commitment to this space, right? In 10 years, Taloy is the first artist from that space that we have commissioned and engaged with in that scale. You know, Alexander Lee was before, there were others, but really the main direction was from the West to go on a trip, come back, produce something here for here. Um, I think this is the largest shortcoming and we've, uh, you know, drawn our consequences out of that. Um, we're changing the format, we've abandoned the boat, we're trying to do things differently. You know, there are many others, but, um, but I think that's the biggest one. Maybe this is how it has to be. I mean, it takes time. If you don't allow it to take time, you know, and to evolve after some time, then it's completely imposed. I agree, but I think you need to expose yourself to these processes. And these are difficult processes and they're completely destabilizing everything that you know. And we, we are currently in a transition, no? We are in a, in a moment in time where so many things are all of a sudden becoming fluid. And that is something that uh, triggers immense insecurities. So it's really difficult to come to these critical points and it's really difficult... To, um, to engage in a conversation where someone really openly says to you, if you come here and if you talk this big game, this is what you do. This is how you engage. If you want to continue this, this is how it works. And it needed time to get to that point. And I'm very, very, very grateful that we came to this point um, after three years of working with um, Ute Mitterbauer, There was this moment in her last convening, which happened in Singapore at the organization that she directs, the Center for Contemporary Art at the university, NTU in Singapore, where actually we had a number of people that we had engaged with um, in Fiji um, and to come to, uh, to Singapore. And it was very clear. The way that, uh, that they had shown up, they went back and forth a lot. Shall we go? Shall we not go? It took a lot of convincing from friends in in uh, Fiji and Oceania to convince and lend their kind of um, 
integrity uh, to convince um, some people to come. But when they came, they were very transparent. And it was, for me, it was one of the most meaningful encounters. Uh, transparent in which sense? Transparent in the sense to say, okay, let's be completely frank and let's be completely open about there is an intergenerational trauma that has been passed down that is very alive and that is very very close to the surface and and um, it's being reinforced by people coming to the space, by people taking images, by putting them into circulation. The people that have been taken images of or the images have been taken off have no chance to engage with this kind of circulation. They have no stake in this kind of image economy. Um, promises are made, they're not being fulfilled. Um, promises are made of a relationship and constant engagement. This relationship never happened. People would not return. Even if they're not meant as acts of violence, they are registered as acts of violence because there is a lived experience that knows exactly this kind of engagement, right? And something that is, that might be, um, I, you know, I was just busy, didn't have the chance to go back. Something, you know, something more important came up. It leaves an impression and it, and it reinstates and manifests a certain kind of um, hierarchy and imbalance in hierarchy that is very difficult to deal with. We operate under protocols. We operate in a completely different societal structure. You have to bring respect. You have to bring humility. You have to listen. I don't care what you think, right? Listen to what I have to say. All of these things, right? All of these things are, are a gift that uh, were handed to me and to, to the organization. Both when dealing with the ocean as well with the indigenous populations from the Pacific Islands, our view is overshadowed by guilt. Mm -hmm. And from this guilt, an, an impulse to, to save, mm -hmm. to conserve, mm. to regenerate. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, the example with the treasure on mm. Cocos mm. Island. You also have been engaged in observing the deep seabed mm -hmm. authority. Mm -hmm. um, you have been engaged in replanting a coral mm -hmm. reef in mm -hmm. front of Jamaica. Mm -hmm. How does that feel? You started in the beginning bringing artists yeah. and scientists together, giving artists the chance to engage with the ocean. Mm -hmm. But you are as well in the middle of a big, big, big uh, political struggle. Absolutely. It's so difficult to say because the line between personal and professional is so thin. It's a liminal space. It's super soft and it moves all the time. So I ask myself a lot, is this a savior complex? Is this a guilt complex? What are you doing, right? Um, I hope it's not. I'm not 100% sure. I hope it's not. I think um, with knowledge and, and possibility comes responsibility. And I, I always wondered, you know, for, for cultural organizations that receive so much information about so much violence and injustice through artists that they exhibit with super engaged practices. And these organizations just keep on doing what they're doing and just, you know, continue. Is that enough? I feel we have a different responsibility and that might be a savior complex. I don't know. But I do think if we put things into the public sphere, it's a political gesture. And if this is a political gesture, we have a responsibility to act upon this. I think, especially with the International Seabed Authority, and this, this situation is changing dramatically right now, when... We started engaging this. This information came to us through Amin Linke and his way of perceiving the world, right? Amin um, gets invited to go somewhere. He asks in his network, does anybody have a contact? If there's a contact and there's something that he deems interesting to go and visit, he enters into that space. And so this is how he got access to the International Seabed Authority. We made him aware, Francesca, and I at some point found on the Facebook page of uh, Mission Blue, which is Sylvia Earle's um, organization, um, 
a post on the International Seabed Authority with a very strange and curious map, right? And then I started reading, and then uh, it turned out that there's this organization, the International Seabed Authority, in Jamaica. So Francesca has this long-standing relationship with Jamaica, therefore we wanted to do our first convening there. And um, Armin Linke asked around in his network and through Davo Vidas, who is uh, a member of the International Law Association, um, a speculative legal association thinking about um, the legalities of sea level rise, we got access to the International Seabed Authority. And during this visit, a member of the authority took us aside and said, listen, you need to look into this. This is a disaster waiting to happen. This is an organization that is corrupt from the inside. It is um, supposedly a United Nations tool because the United Nations wanted to externalize this body so that it would be not be susceptible for corruption. And then in its iterations got completely watered down and is now what it is. The International Seabed Authority governs the deep seabed of the high seas, which is everything that is outside of national jurisdiction, meaning outside of the exclusive economic zones of nations. This is over 60% of the planet. There is a number of areas that the International Seabed Authority has set aside for extraction of minerals. So there are different minerals, there are smokers, there are phosphate deposits, and there are what is called manganese nodules. So, but when we started engaging with this, this is in 2016, I believe, um, this looked like distant future. So the question really was when this came to us, can we, as an arts and cultural organization, become observer at this policymaking body? Can we sit next to WWF and the United States, who are also observers, and all the other, you know, more conservation agencies? And can we actually engage in a process before the disaster has happened, instead of always after the fact, after an oil spill, after the dam, after, you know, after all? So can we get ahead of this? Clearly, the urgency around climate change turning into climate crisis, climate crisis turning into catastrophe, urgency to find solutions, the deep sea bed all of a sudden becomes completely viable. One just needs to imagine what it means to be four to 5,000 meters deep, send uh, autonomous vehicles or remotely operated vehicles down there that are ginormously big to dig up the deep seabed. All of the visualizations that are presented to the general audience, public and, and policymakers, look as if this is a hard surface. And on this hard surface, there is a vehicle that just uh, goes around and picks up these potato-like nodules. And then it brings it up, shoots it up to the surface, and that's it. Done deal. What is not being said is that the deep seabed is a soft surface that is 10 meters, 12 meters, 15 meters deep. And buried in this surface is thousands of years of carbon that is in this activity released back into the water column all of this sedimentation gets distributed through the water column and with the water column through the currents and god knows what this means for the ecosystem so the, the question is what do you do with this information right what do you do when you find out that this body is completely corrupt it's completely intransparent there are decisions made um, from a body that is uh, tucked away in the harbor of Kingston and takes decisions on the behalf of, um, of the global community that no one is involved in. And in its setup, there's a legal and technical committee of 32 people or something like that. And above that is a secretary general. And the secretary general um, can consult the legal and technical committee or he cannot. It's a complete black box. Decisions are made. And, and that's it. So going back, is this a savior complex? I'm not sure, but I do think that there are some informations that, um, that we can act upon and, um, and we choose to act upon. And yeah. So what can you do? You can engage. So what we did in the first session, right, there was uh, the drafting of the first mining code. Every member um, of the General Assembly, but also all um, observers are asked to write comments to that mining code. And we left comments, right? In the first round, we left the most extensive comments. Um, we 
We were engaging with um, with local communities that will be affected by this. We uh, we gather networks of of experts, of legal experts, scientific experts, and so on. And this is political work. Yeah, this is like an NGO. I wonder how you could use this specific approach that you started with of bringing artists and scientists together. When I heard about your plans to, mm. to, to start a pavilion in Venice mm. dedicated to, to the ocean, I was, uh, I was mesmerized. Mm. I thought, how intelligent is this? Because in Venice, there are all these national pavilions mm. that open one year, it's dedicated to the arts, one year to architecture. And it's such an old-fashioned idea to have a representation of an artist or collective of one nation, like mm -hmm. in one pavilion. But in a way, they, they show the, the reality that is we are still shaped by nation yeah. states. And um, so I thought, wow, yeah, you just claim this is the, the pavilion of the oceans. Mm -hmm. So the organization that is behind this is kind of claiming to be um, the the government mm -hmm. of the ocean, which, of course, you could not do in the political sphere. It would be completely ridiculous. But in the world of arts, you can try. You give mm -hmm. it a try. I mean, just to be playful with it, to follow this logic. What does it mean? Um, and I think this is what also inspired this podcast in the first mm -hmm. place, this idea. What... If we don't just think about giving the ocean um, our own concerns about ourselves, about our environment, we um, want the ocean back to be like it was 50 years ago, but maybe not like 200 years ago, because at that time it was full of predators. Mm -hmm. uh, we want the ocean nice for... for Good for the tourist industry, no? It's yes. like safe, exotic. Yeah, and then a number of dangers yeah. Yeah, that as well can then be exploited mm -hmm. even more. Yeah, yeah. And I would love to follow this speculation. Mm -hmm. It's a national pavilion yeah. of the ocean. And for some reason you have been mm. commissioned by the ocean yeah. uh, doing your program. This implies that, um, you know, when we talk about rights of nature, mm -hmm. which we think is like really step forward, we regard um, different uh, natural entities mm. as um, mm -hmm. like legal uh, persons. But boats have personal rights as well. <laughs> yes, companies have it. And we have to see that Christopher Stone, who came up with this mm -hmm. whole concept, uh, compared um, natural entities to miners. Yeah, so you give them rights. But at the same time, you kind of legalize the imbalance between us and nature, between us who passed the age of consent and nature will never. How could we overcome this and go mm. one step further? Um, well, if I was commissioned by the ocean to run the ocean pavilion as its national representation or transnational representation, First thing I would do if I would follow the modernist logic of progress, I would install a climate control system in the in the space. And I would start burning fossil fuels like crazy. I would make sure that the ice caps melt as quickly as possible because I would expand my, my nation state dramatically. I would uh, aim for filling the steps of ocean space until you can actually reach the door of ocean space by boat, which means the rest of Venice is gone. And uh, the first step that I, as the director of this space, could actively take is just to crank up the carbon footprint. Currently, this space doesn't have air conditioning or any form of climate control, right? But it's an art space. It should have that so that we can uh, display precious objects from uh, from all over the world. Uh, I just heard the other day the, the, the amount of cubic meter that this space has. So for those that haven't seen this space yet and um, will come visit at some point by train or by bike 
or if you want to do me a favor, take a big, big, big airplane in first class because that just means that you're burning more fossil fuels. The ceiling height is 26 meters high, um, which makes it, I believe, the largest single volume in Venice. Um, we don't have a climate control and we don't have any kind of air conditioning or comfort zone in there. So this means this is a big outdoor space with a roof. Right? There's uh, large windows, and these windows are thin windows because it's a historic monument. Uh, it has very big doors, so more or less the space is inside as warm or cold as outside. Therefore, we can't run it the entire year because it just gets too cold and too damp after November. But if I was commissioned by the ocean to get more ocean, I would make sure that it's always, you know, 21 degrees and that there's a certain kind of humidity in there and that there's a certain kind of controlled environment in there so that I can put any beautiful painting up that a lot of people would come even more people would come and fly to Venice to see these I would make sure that I get the Mona Lisa somehow I would make a deal with the Louvre to put only the Mona Lisa in ocean space millions of people would fly to Venice every year to see it millions and millions and millions of people and uh, if you imagine the space it's in right now and everybody needs to cramp in there, it would just continue. And you have 800 square meters full of people shoulder to shoulder, you know, in there, perfect 21 degrees, nice humidity in the air and the Mona Lisa. Yeah, you could also convince a Pacific island about uh, renting the Mona Lisa so people would go there. Also a possibility. Do an expansion of the... Yeah. Of the pavilion in the yeah, Pacific Islands. That's so true. Even more carbon that's footprint. This could be a first step, right? There's many other um, artworks that people travel around the world for, and then we put one in Tuvalu and we put one um, in the Marshall Islands and we put one, you know, in all of these fantastic places that are struggling with the rising sea levels. You know, we would make sure that the militarization of the poles gets accelerated. You could uh, launch some campaigns that Russia needs more, even more military on the North Pole. And, and because Russia has it, then the United States needed too. And we know that uh, military is the biggest, uh, at least the American military, is the biggest producer of carbon. And um, it's intrinsically feeding itself. No, the machine gets bigger, mean, needs more oil. Um, yeah, uh, we just need to make sure that uh, all of this militarization continues. I think the poles would be great because then you can dig and you can destroy ice and you can make sure it melts really quickly. And um, yeah, I think that uh, that would be good. Cultural diplomacy, reverse. If you think of the whole like history of the Earth, uh, ice on the, on the poles mm. has been rather the exception yeah. than the rule. Mm -hmm. So we just get back to kind of normal yeah. state. No, I mean, you can judge this really negatively, but actually this is conservation. No? This is going back to the original state. So we're doing everyone a favor plus the ocean. And then even the Western population would profit, as Mara Hart told me, because when areas got flooded, plus the global warming mm. would lead to uh, new coral reefs in these like flooded areas of uh, North huh. America, of Europe. Uh, so new, many, new, many, new many tourist more. destinations. Yes, you know, wherever did you see like a polar bear except in the zoo? That's true. It's uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, and of course they could be saved in zoos easily. Yeah, and by this, I mean by these cool down mm. Mm. zoos, of course, yeah, accelerating the there climate change. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a really good plan. We should have lots of Arctic habitat in zoos in very hot places, right? I think, actually, now that you say, it, I think Nevada. I think Las Vegas needs an ice bear, polar bear, and penguin kind of habitat. Do you know the TV series? And it's called Wife Swap. No. You have two different uh, households, and they swap the wives. How far does it go? Let's say you have a super posh mm -hmm. family, mm -hmm. and then you have hippies living in a trailer, yeah. and then they they swap. They swap for several weeks and uh, they, you know, 
undergo certain experiences. Yeah. And um, I wonder if for you as uh, in charge of this like mm. national pavilion of the ocean, if if these swaps, mm-hmm. I mean, could be somehow implemented, like ocean swaps, mm. humans that we make an effort, you know, with all the technology that there is mm. to swap, to turn into certain oceanic creatures. And if so, which creatures should that be? Well, it depends on, you know, I think you need to offer offer different possibilities, you know. For people that desire lots of sex with multiple partners, I would suggest swap with a dolphin, right? Um, supposedly, they're one of the very few creatures, species on the planet that uh, also have uh, joy. It's an act of joy, sex, right? For others that have the desire to really feel a lot and express their feelings, they could become octopus, right? Because um, you have eight arms and everything that you think immediately shows on your uh, skin. So I'm, I'm sure many, many acting students would love that, right? Feel more and express everything. People that are too rigid and really just want to let loose, right? they could become jellyfish. There is uh, something for everyone in the ocean. It's just a question of, you know, what do you have to offer? And the ocean has everything. The ocean has everything to offer. Um, what creature would you like to turn in if you would have the choice? Let's say for a week or a month. Mm. Um, I always think that, you know, observing, for example, a sea lion they seem to have tremendous joy just um, rocketing through the ocean. What would it feel like to be a sperm whale, right? The largest brain on the planet that can dive for half an hour longer um, and traverse from the surface to 3,000 meters depth and then have these epic battles in the deep sea with giant squid. Also, plankton. Just be a tiny little piece of plankton and be like in this ginormous crowd of trillions and trillions of your buddies also it's you know it's like a mega uh, music festival kind of thing right so um huh. it's so hard to choose do you think there are, uh, some sea creatures could also profit from doing this swap like turning into humans for hmm. some period look i'm sure for for a sea cucumber for example it would be super exciting Right, not to have when when danger approaches to kind of expel your stomach out at your um, opponent, but can just run away or get into a fist fight or something. I think that could be quite attractive. You know, maybe starfish or urchins where the mouth is also the anus. I think to have two mouth and anus would be a fantastic, at least some kind of exotic um, experience for a while. Maybe maybe they come to the conclusion that one is enough. I'm sure also, you know, whales, after having come on land, been there for a while, and then gone back to the ocean to to become ocean-dwelling creatures, maybe there's a lingering kind of question, what would it be like if we actually stayed on land, right? So maybe to give them the possibility for two weeks to just um, roam Earth and um, become terrestrial beings, maybe they would appreciate that. For jellyfish, maybe to experience how how afraid these huge creatures are yeah. of them. Of the bite. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they only think that they do self-protection yeah. uh, for octopus to live longer. Yeah. Three years, it's really sad. But it's somehow the octopus with this three-year lifespan, at least for the giant Pacific octopus, is the rock star of the ocean. But at the same time, the puritan among the rock stars was having sex only one time and then they die yeah, yeah, yeah that's true no but is it sex only the one time or do they only give birth once because i think it's they only give birth once the male ones at mm. least they give away their sperm and then i think it's over ah really well there is no equality i guess the governmental structure of this ocean nation would mm. be like mm. i mean I would imagine enormous tensions between the different species and their interests because they're so mm. different. Not just that um, that they often have opposing interests, but also 
um, the ways to articulate them mm. are very different. Mm. I mean, there are those who can kind of speak, who yeah. can, can communicate, yeah. Yeah. and then those who cannot. Yeah, but therefore Venice is the perfect place, no? Because um, Venice is built on this festival and carnival structure, right? Every year changing art, architecture, but then there's also the festival of music and the festival of film, the festival of theater and the festival of dance. So everybody has their space and everybody can express themselves whichever way they need to express themselves, right? There can be discursive programs with stony corals or um, or uh, there can be, you know, yoga with starfish. I mean, there's a, there's everybody has a space in the ocean pavilion and everybody has through the structure of venice the possibility to a arrive there you know by their own means because it's floating in the ocean and if we're doing a good job you can arrive in ocean space swimming and on the other hand the way that venice has trained itself to be excited about all of these different formats constantly but is also flexible enough to embrace these different expressions it's the perfect place for the ocean to arrive for a cultural program you can say everything or nothing you can be completely expressive or you can be silent you can have interspecies assemblies and mingle amongst each other and you know i guess um if we're doing a really good job at the end the whales will come and move in because they need a certain sea level rise and otherwise it's too shallow for whales We need to start with plankton. I guess we need to work our way up. Plankton, then we need these fabulous little uh, sharks that hunt in tide pools, right? But they can be on land for a while and they kind of hop around on land. So a little bit of sea level rise is already enough for those. Um, I guess for now we need to do a lot of public programming just in the canals. And, and the more successful we are, the bigger the show. This was the 10th episode of Ocean Wands, featuring Marcus Ryman. Ocean Wands is a podcast series commissioned and produced by TVA 21 Academy. Conceived, hosted, and edited by Ingo Nierman. Music composed and arranged by Villa Haimala. Intro read by Joan Jonas. Credits read by Stacey Boucher. Sound edited by Robin Michel. Produced by Ingo Nierman and Maria Montero-Sierra. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org, dertank.ch, or subscribe with your podcast provider.